hear from you, to hear from your word on this very specific issue of marriage. And Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to speak through your word and give us ears to hear and hearts that are willing to receive what the spirit says to his church. No, Father, I pray that you'd grant humility, that we would receive the implanted word and that we would not rebel against it or resist it, but rather to be found doers of the word and not merely hearers only for your great glory and for our own great joy. We long to have marriages and families that adequately reflect the glory of our maker. And yet, Lord, we are incapable of doing that without your spirit. And so we humbly ask that you would come and do this work in us and change us, transform us for the glory of Jesus, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Welcome back. This is uh, kind of session two in a multi-session at least. Uh, we were thinking six weeks is going to be at least seven now because I didn't finish my notes last time. And as I said last time, my section is going to be uh, just on the building blocks of marriage and uh, what marriage is described as and how it's supposed to function in terms of scripture. And then Keith is going to come at the end of that and uh, give us, take us a little more deeper in the theological aspect of uh, the question of um, complementarian versus egalitarian view of marriage and where do we land? And I'll just tell you, we land on the complementarian side. And if you don't know what that means, I'm not going to preempt Keith by telling you. So you'll just need to stay tuned for him. Um, so we began talking about the foundations for marriage. And, uh, and if you look at your notes, the, the, the number on the front page is number two. This is page number two because we covered all of number one. So let me just rehearse very quickly what we covered in in, uh, on page one. We talked about God's purpose for marriage, God's purposes for marriage. And first of all, his purpose is to glorify God. God created us in his image so that we would show the world what God is like. And we see that again in uh, Ephesians chapter five, when in that whole section there, beginning with verse 22, all the way down to the end of that chapter, verse 33, he is blending this idea of Christ's relationship with the church with your relationship with your spouse. And it becomes very clear as he's going through this that God created marriage from the beginning to be a picture of Christ's relationship with the church long before the church was ever even created. And so it's, it's not the other way around. God didn't create the church and then say, huh, looky there. There's some parallels I observe between this church that I've created and what marriage is. No, 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 no. He started, he started with defining what marriage was supposed to be. And it was supposed to be a reflection of what he would create at the coming of Christ in the creation of his church. So we are to magnify the glory of God in our marriages. That's purpose number one. And secondly, to procreate the image of God. How do we do that? Well, by having children. And even, I think, adopting children, I would argue, is also a living picture of, um, of the gospel. It's, we exist not only to show what God is like, but more specifically, we exist to show the world what Christ is like and what the gospel is like. So when you are out to dinner with your children, the question you should be asking yourself, or when you're sitting in worship service with your children, the question is, do we have room for improvement here relative to training our children in such a way that shows those who are watching what Jesus is like, and what the gospel is like, what God is like, the glory of God. And when people see your marriage, when they're looking across the room and they're seeing you interact, or they drive up next to you in, uh, in the car and they look over through your window and you have no idea that they're there, are they seeing a picture of the gospel? Are they seeing a picture of Jesus Christ? 
So we ex the marriage is for the glory of God. It is to procreate the glory of God or the image of God. And thirdly, and this is where we're spending all of our time, it is, its purpose was for intimate companionship. And we talked about this in detail last week. Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him, a helper suitable, one who is, who is uh, uh, literally it means corresponding with, one who fits uniquely with this man that I created because he has needs. He is perfect, but he is incomplete. And God demonstrated that after saying, I will make him a helper. He didn't immediately make him a helper. The next thing he does, you remember, is bring him all the animals and have him name them. And, and we suspect, although Moses doesn't uh, give us commentary on this, it, it just seems that God wanted, Abra uh, wanted Adam to see his deficiency. Here's, here's these animals, and they're all, they're all in twos, male and female, male and female, male and female. Where's... Where's my helper who corresponds to me? And then God creates the woman. And we saw also in, in, uh, in our discussion of marriage that uh, the big problem in lots of marriages, in all of our marriages to some degree, is that one or both partners did not come into it with the idea that we would be mutual companions. And we saw a couple of scriptures, Proverbs 27 or, or, or 2.17, says, a strange woman, an adulteress, leaves the companion of her youth. In Malachi 2.14, he's talking about divorce, and he says, the Lord will be witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion. And you see this again and again and again, that God created man and wife to be companions, not just roommates, not just fellow laborers, but companions. So that when your nest becomes empty, you haven't lost anything. In a sense, you have gained something. Because now you get to spend more time with the companion of your youth for the glory of God and your own joy. But many of us come into our marriages with the idea that, um, uh, that, that we, are, we are in this for me. I, I am in this for me. I'm marrying I'm marrying this per person for my sake because I have needs. And, um, and let me just give you a practical example of that. Because I think that we as conservative evangelical, uh, Bible-believing um, uh, raisers of children, those of you who have God has given children to, are susceptible to this kind of thinking. And I, and I say that because I've, I've seen this again and again. And sometimes moms... And, and, uh, and grandmothers will tell their teenage boys uh, who are struggling with lust that uh, the cure for that is to get married. And oh my, my, my. Please, mothers, don't tell your boys that. Uh, don't, don't inflict that on some girl. Uh, that is, it's sin, and he needs to deal with that. And he needs to deal with it, if at all possible, before he gets married. And, and the girl that he is intending to marry needs to know uh, to help him or, or to end the relationship, whatever needs to happen. But the idea is companionship here. It, it, the word companion literally means one who is tamed or one who has a, a close, intimate relationship with another person. The problem is we go into marriage with untamed hearts. We, we want to be free. We want to be... Uh, able to do whatever we want. We, we, in our heart of hearts, we, apart from Christ, like what the world says about marriage. That is, you can do with what, whatever you want, with whomever you want, however you want, and there are no parameters to that. And that is, that is not God's way. And it's a horrific way to live, um, having an untamed heart. So, the depraved, self-centered nature is like a wild animal that wants to live for itself, gratify its own desires, pursue its, its, uh, its every whim, and deny self no pleasure. But that's not the way God created marriage. Now, last week I lifted a, an outline that I got from John MacArthur. He was specifically speaking of divorce, and, uh, and it was, nevertheless, the outline is so good, I just went ahead and stole it from him. And... Um, and here we go, and, and, and it's just so easy to remember and so helpful. 
Uh, the first thing Jesus points out is that God created one man and one woman. This is one man, one woman. And the second thing we saw, one flesh. They are to be joined. He is to be joined to his wife. And they are to be one flesh. One man, one woman, one flesh. And he put them in a strong bond. The strong bond being that uh, they were to cleave to one another. They were fors to forsake all else and cling to one another. They were put together by God in this, this one flesh relationship. So it's one man, one woman, strong bond, one flesh, and then number five, work of God. Your marriage is a work of God. And you may be thinking, uh, you only say that because you don't know my marriage. And, and I say that in response, in response to that, I would say, you only say that because you don't know God. You don't know the hope that you have that it was God who put you together. And God could have kept you apart because he is absolutely sovereign. He is infinite in all of his perfections. And one of those perfections is his sovereignty rules over all. So he puts you with that person to whom you are married. And that's hopeful. That's hopeful. Because that means that the good and holy and righteous God who has wisdom to know everything that needs to be done and the power to accomplish it has chosen in the infinite wisdom that he has to put the two of you together. And he's done it, we know from Romans 8, 28 and 29. That God causes all things to work together for good to those who are the called of God. Um, and what is the good? The good is, verse 29, that you would be conformed to the image of his son. God is using your spouse to conform you to the image of your son. The only question is, are you, are you cooperating with that? Or is your sole focus simply to change my spouse, my spouse? Then I will be happy. If she would only, what? Then I would be happy. If he would only get saved, or if he would only stop watching television so much, then I would be happy. My mother used to have a little sign on the television dial. We used to have a, you know, a knob that you actually had to get out of your seat and turn. But she had this, uh, this sign that said, we interrupt, the we interrupt this marriage to bring you the football season. And uh, I think sometimes my mom would just say, you know, I, this would be a happy marriage. If he, would, if he would only, then I could be happy. And that's not how God wants us to view our marriages or our lives in any respect. We might better say, if only I knew God better and appropriated what he has promised me, then I would be happy. Because that's the real truth. I often ask um, uh, spouses in counseling, if your wife never changes, what does God require of you? If your husband never changes, what does God require of you? And he's only requiring it for your good, for your joy. This is grace to you. This is grace to you. And someday, maybe not till heaven, you'll be able to look back, and probably many times before heaven, you'll be able to look back and say, I've seen glimpses of that grace. I've seen glimpses. Because he's been so good to me, even in this difficult situation. But that's the way marriage was intended to be, right? One man, one woman, strong bond, one flesh, work of God. What an amazing gift. What an amazing gift. And for you young ladies and young men who are unmarried, I want you to hear this. And I want you to hear it not only from me, but from others in this church body uh, who are modeling for you the reality that your, your marriage does not have to be like your parents' marriage and so many of you come from divorced homes, and you're down on marriage because you witnessed a bad marriage, and you don't want that, so you'd just rather not be married. And I would say, if you have the Spirit of God, then you can make the choices right now that will help put you in a position where your marriage will not be like that. All I'm saying is God's way is better. God's way is better. Um, so... That brings us to number two, and that's on page two for you, man's problem in marriage. Okay, so here's God's one man, one woman, um, strong bond, 
one flesh work of God. That's, that's how he created it. And yet we all know that none of us live that all the time. Now, some of you who are just newly married may think, oh, but it's been so wonderful these past three weeks. <laughs> you realize we have two weddings next weekend of uh, young ladies who grew up in this church, one on Saturday and one on Sunday. And, um, and praise the Lord for that. And they may think at this point, wow, m- marriage is going to be wonderful. And, and I will say, uh, you only say that because you've only had to live with one sinner. <laughs> when you get married, you're going to have at least two, and that's going to multiply. You're going to have more than, than one sinner in your home, and it's going to become exponentially harder. It's not the way God's planned it, and not, not the uh, original picture of marriage, one man, one woman, strong bond, one flesh, work of God. But it is reality now that sin, is, sin has entered the world. Genesis 3 records for us the fall of mankind into sin and the curse that resulted. Can we just go back there to, to um, Genesis chapter 3? Genesis 3. And now the serpent, verse 1, was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? By the way, I just want you to notice that, um, that Satan's approach here is to question God's word. And every step of the way, he is assaulting God's word. That's significant. That will always be Satan's approach in your life. Is he will bring questions and bring denials of God's word. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it. Or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Now there's outright denial of God's word, right? For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will will be like God, knowing good from evil. Good and evil, that's something they didn't know anything about. Because they didn't know anything but good. Well, what is this evil? God's holding out on us. Satan is saying, you know, listen, God is all law. He doesn't want you to know everything. He, he wants you to be under his thumb. I'm, I'm grace. I want you to know everything. God's holding out on you. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her. And you've got to ask, what was he doing? He was with her. This is the beginning of... Um, the problem of male passivity, the passive man. He was there and he did nothing. With her and he ate. Then, verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They're covering, right? Isn't that what we do with our sin? Nothing's changed. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. Now they're hiding. That's what we do as well, right? Cover and hide, cover and hide, cover and hide. Uh, you'll, You'll never make progress against the sin in your heart and the sin that is affecting your relationships until you humble yourself and stop covering and hiding. Um hid themselves from the presence of the, of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me. Don't you love that? The woman whom you gave me to be with, gave, uh, gave to be with me, she gave me... Uh, from the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, 
and I ate, and the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and the dust of uh, and, and uh, dust you will eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. I believe that's a direct reference. This is this verse, verse 15, is called the Proto Euangelion, which means the first gospel. This is this is God, God's first indication that He has a gospel plan that would be fulfilled in Christ. He would be. Eve's seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply, multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. And your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground, etc. Let's just stop there. Uh, but you, you kind of see the picture here, right? And we all know this picture. It's good for us to read it, because it is God's word. And we need to see it. Beginning with verse 14, the Lord begins revealing what effect sin would have in the world now that they have unleashed sin by their willful disobedience. In 14 and 15, God curses the serpent. In 16, God curses the, the woman who would have increased pain in childbearing. And in verse 17, God curses Adam's labor. He curses the ground. Most importantly, however, at the end of verse 16, we find revealed a fundamental problem that has plagued every marriage since the entrance of sin upon the world. God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Notice the word desire. In your desire shall be for your husband. Now, some will say this probably is referring to sexual desire or psychological desire of, on Eve's part, but that doesn't seem to fit the context. Um, actually, the term desire here is from the Arabic word it means to compel, to impel, to urge, to seek control over. In Genesis 4.17, we see the same term used in the same way when God is warning Cain. You remember that whole story? Cain and Abel, Cain was the firstborn, Abel was second. Abel was a righteous man, righteous Abel, he'd be called in, in Hebrews. Cain was wicked. We don't know all the dynamics here, but... Cain was insanely jealous and would kill his brother. But before he killed his brother, the Lord came and appeared to Cain. And he said to Cain, Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. And he didn't. He didn't master his desire. He let his desire rule him and he ended up killing his brother. But the, the key thing here is to see the usage of the word desire here. It's the same word here as it was back there when God told Eve, your desire will be for man. He told Cain, you must, you must subdue that desire, that impulse in you. You must master sin. And in the same way, the wife will from the moment of the inception of sin into the world, she would seek to usurp her husband's rule. So all I'm saying is here is the original battle of the sexes. This is where it all began. Didn't begin in 1963 when the Clintons were growing in power, you know, and the whole college movement and the sexual revolution had begun and, and, and you know, the, the, the fight against authority and the Vietnam War and and all of that stuff, that, that was merely an expression, a, a, a culture-wide expression of the microcosm, the root, the seed of it, which is found in Genesis 3. The battle of the sexes. And it's been that way ever since. It's just the nature of sin. It's the nature of sin. And that's why in, 
In James chapter 4, James asked the question, why is there fighting and quarreling among you? Why, why do the two of you fight? Is it not this, that your passions wage war in your members? You fight and quarrel because you desire and do not obtain. So you commit murder. Why, that sounds like Cain. You don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasure. The whole, that whole text is saying this. The reason there's fighting and arguing, the reason there's a battle of the sexes in your marriage is because you have competing desires. You want what you want. You do what you do because you want what you want. And so the question you have to wrestle with if there's tension in your home is this. What do I want right now that's tempting me to sin? Do I want it so badly I'm willing to sin to get it or sin if I can't have it? That came about in Genesis 3. As soon as sin came into the heart of men and women or out of the heart of men and women, this battle of the sexes began. James 4 began to rule in our homes. This is where men and women began became preoccupied with self to the detriment of their strong bond, one flesh relationship to one another in marriage. And even to this day, this is the problem, and it haunts and wreaks havoc in every marriage. You say, yeah, but, but ours is really, really bad. I mean, you probably have never even seen a marriage that, you know, I mean, you see us at church, you don't see us at home, and it's really, really bad, and you would be shocked. Well, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says... No temptation has overtaken you, but what is, what, common to man? That should be really hopeful. And if that's not hopeful, the next phrase is, but God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. Um, this is nothing uncommon. There is nothing uncommon about this. In fact, if you are married... You have already experienced this, and if, it, if you haven't already experienced it, you haven't been married very long, because you will. Um, but as I said, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be this way. Um, why did we start a counseling ministry at Calvary Bible Church? Why, why do I spend time every week, every week, in fact, this past week, very unusual. I usually, there's one day a week I typically counsel and only one or two cases. Um, but this week, I had my one that was scheduled and I had four others unscheduled. People just called. I, I, just need, I just need a few minutes. Pastor, can you help me? I got this problem. I got this decision. I've got this issue. Why do we have that? Why, why have we established that here? The, the answer to that question is, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to live this way. God is faithful, and he has given us his sufficient word. You don't have to live in the battle of the sexes. You don't have to have a marriage that's ruled by sin. You can know the joy of walking in the Spirit. Perhaps not perfectly this side of heaven, but you can taste it. You can taste it daily. You can taste it regularly. You can taste it so much that you want more of it. And after a while, you'll say, you know, hey, it's been 24 hours since we've had our last fight. Yes, that's a new record. <laughs> and then it'll be a week, two weeks, a month. doesn't have to be this way. God has provided everything we need. So then, what's the solution to the, the marriage dilemma? So that brings us to number three, God's solution for a struggling marriage. And we can jump into Ephesians chapter 5 here. Ephesians 5. And, of course, you understand I'm giving you a crash course here. It would be better if uh, you could just sit down with someone and say, can you, can you just help us? sort some of this stuff out. That would be ideal. James chapter 5 gives us the model. Essentially what Paul tells us there is that we need to get back to living out our purpose for which God created marriage, namely to show the world what God is like. Husbands, the husband's provision and leadership 
is a mirror of Christ's provision and leadership over his church. The wife's submission is to mirror the church's submission to Christ. And so this is what we read, beginning in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. And let me just say this in verse 21, first of all, where he says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then he's going to launch into marriage. This is not a, a support for egalitarianism. But it is a command that even as a leader in your home, husband, you are, this is a military term here, when he says subject yourselves to one another, he, it literally can be translated um, rank yourself under. You're a sergeant, they're, they're just a private in the army, in the military. But you being the sergeant should regularly be doing what Jesus did when he dis washed the disciples' feet. Rank yourself under. Act as if you were the one who was lower and in rank. And, and, and that's for you men. And you wives also. Relate to your husband as if you are lower in rank than him. It's, it's a competition, almost like what uh, uh, um, uh, John the Baptist said. He must increase, I must decrease. That's the attitude. And it's not just wives for husbands, it's husbands for wives. So even as you lead, even as you fulfill your divine role in your marriage, you are to rank yourself under and also lead. you got to know when it's appropriate to do this or that. As one of my favorite theologians said, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. <laughs> okay, never mind. <laughs> Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he himself being the Savior of, of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. It's just another, another way of saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your wife as you love yourself. She, he who loves his own wife loves himself. For, and by the way, that's, that's not an appeal for the self-esteem gospel. That's just a common observation. You already love yourself. The hard thing is not doing that. The hard thing is using that as a model for how you treat other people. Love her the way you naturally already love yourself. Anyway, we'll get into that. Verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery, but, here we are, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and his church. Wait, 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 I thought you were talking about marriage. I am. I thought you just said you were talking about the church. I am. The two are inseparable. Um, this is a great mystery, verse 32, but I am speaking of Christ in the church. Nevertheless, each individual uh, among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Here's what he's saying. The created marriage is a picture of the church. Are you showing the world, what Jesus' church is supposed to look like. Do they hear it in your conversations with one another? Do they hear it in the way you talk about your husband, the way you talk about your wife? Do they listen and say, hmm, that is wonderful and refreshing. I'm so used to hearing, and I've heard women say this, uh, they come, this one woman came, and first time to meet with our ladies, it was for a, a, a fellowship years ago, and she came out weeping, and, and we got to talk with her, what, what's going on? She said, I've never been among a group of women who we met with hours for hours, and nobody ever said anything negative about their husband, 
The focus was on Christ and his word and the joy and the things they were thankful for. Never seen anything like that. That's a picture of the church's love for Christ and vice versa with men. And so I wish I could unpack all of this for us this morning. I, I preached a whole series, probably 60-some sermons on these six chapters in Ephesians. And you can go back and listen to that if you want. But let me just point out to you two biblical concepts that will do more to help your marriage become what God designed it to be than I know of anything else. Number one, resolve to love one another biblically. Resolve to love one another biblically. You say, well, I love my husband. To which I would ask, what do you mean by that? Does it mean you wake up in the morning and look over at her and say, wow, I love that woman. I, I feel strong affection for her or for him. Or is it a biblical love? Nothing unbiblical about that. You should cherish your wife. He even says that in verse, what is it, 20, uh, 20, 20, 20. Yeah, verse 28, uh, so husbands ought to love their wives as, Christ, as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, and what's the next word? Cherishes. There, there's something intangible, subjective about that. Nourish means you provide for. Cherish means she feels treasured by you. Does she? Does she? Um, resolve to love one another bi biblically. One of the biggest problems in marriage is that we don't, we don't know what love is. If you've been around here for a long time, then uh, you know. I sometimes have uh, couples come in for counseling and I, and I start teaching this stuff and they can quote it. Uh, definition of love, no problem. I can quote that. I've heard it 10,000 times here, but it's, it bears repeating. Love means giving what you have that they need because God wants you to. Does that sound subjective? Pretty objective, isn't it? What is it that she needs that you have that God wants you to give right now? And it requires some wisdom because God doesn't want you to give all, all things all the time to everyone. You have to use wisdom. But to your wife, what does she need right now? What does she need? Love means giving whatever you have that she needs or he needs because God wants you to. In other, in other words, fundamentally, love is not a feeling, it's a choice. To love is to give. It's to give. And this isn't just something for marriage. This is something for all of your relationships. Your relationship with your parents. If you're a parent, your relationship to your kids. You say you love them. How many, how many kids growing up in, in domineering homes, you know, controlling parents, have said, yeah, my, my mom and dad said they love me t a thousand times, and I, and I always sensed that what they really meant was, I, I hate you, I don't like you, but I never want to admit that. To love is to give. You say, where do you get that in Scripture? Well, try this one on, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he, what's the next word? Gave. By the way, to give in the Greek is charis, it's the same word for grace. It is the same word for gift. Charis, grace, to give. Um, Ephesians 5.25, we just read, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved, there's love, the church, and what? Gave himself up for her. By the way, gave himself up. Paradidomi in the Greek, it's one word, paradidomi. It's the same word used when Pilate takes Jesus and gives him over to the executioners. He gave himself up for her. So you too, husbands, give yourself up for her. That means give up your desires, your ambitions, your pet hobbies or whatever. You've heard that country song about um, uh, the guy who loved bass fishing, right? And, uh, and, uh, and the song is all about the wife saying, you know, if, if you go fishing one more time, I'm leaving. And the chorus of the song is, wow, I'm going to miss that girl. <laughs> I'm going to miss her. And, 
And, and some men live like this. You know, sorry. I mean, I got to have my needs met. Man, that's a sorry marriage if you're living, if you're living like that. No, no, no. To love is to give what you have that she needs. Listen to this. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man, and by the way, Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man, that is God the Son, is presented to the Ancient of Days, that is God the Father. And the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man all peoples and all nations that they might worship and serve him. Jesus arrives on the scene centuries later, dec- centuries later, and he is now the fulfillment of Son of Man. So that's his favorite term for himself. I am the Son of Man. Even though he was human and lowly and poor. And yet when the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest, Mark 10.45 says this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served. You say, well, Well, Daniel 7 says, he gave you all the nations to worship and serve you. Yes, but here now, I am not here to be served, but to serve and to give his life, give my life as a ransom for many. Now, who is the greater in this scenario? The disciples or Jesus? Who deserves to be served? The disciples or Jesus? Who is demanding to be served? The disciples or Jesus? And who are you that you demand that those around you worship you and you alone by doing what you want and meeting your needs and making you happy and fulfilling your desires and, and, and pouring into your love cup whatever that is. (laughs) And John, 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. To love is to what? It's to give. It's to give. Men, you want to start turning your marriage around? Then start loving your wife biblically. And you may say, well, I have, I have questions. It's good. Seek someone who's got some answers. Well, here's a few. Does she need affection? Does she need your time? A little less in the office, more time with her and the kids. Does she need your help? Maybe educating, repairing the house, um, a break from the children. Does she need you to lead? Scheduling, finances, spiritual issues? Does she need your spiritual nourishment, nourishment, encouragement, and intimacy? Pray, read, minister together, serve? By the way, you young people, if your relationship with that young man or young woman is leading you away from ministry and service to God rather than to it, you should have some flags. Maybe, maybe your direction, maybe you're not leading or maybe you're following the wrong person. Just a thought. And women, do you want to start turning your marriage around? Then start loving your husband biblically. Does he need respect? Does he need affection and intimacy? Does he need help with keeping spending under control? Maybe you're better with the books than he is. Does He need uh, the children to be a little better disciplined while he's gone, more consistently. Now, I understand modern needs theory. And I understand that that is not the motto we use. And I'm not talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is placing his desires, her desires, her ambitions, Her needs, her needs, obviously nobody ever died due to lack of affection, right? Nobody ever died from lack of respect. Uh, You don't die from that. You you die from getting hit by a car or falling off a cliff or being shot with a bullet, but you don't die. And and so that tells me that you you can walk in the spirit while you're not receiving those things. However, 
you should be actively giving those things because to love is to what? To give. To give. And by the way, in, in Romans chapter 12, Romans 12, the Apostle Paul is dealing with what to do when you've got a relationship that is hostile. And he says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. Love your enemy, even if it's your husband or your wife. And how do I do that? Give what you have that he needs or she needs because God wants you to. And you know what? When you're both doing that, you're both doing that? It is Eden restored almost. It can be an amazing, wonderful thing. This is not demanding. It's not about demanding your so-called needs get met or making excuses for sin on the grounds of so-called unmet needs or unfulfilled longings. In fact, it's, this is exactly the point. Love doesn't seek its own, right? 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, love does not seek its own, but rather the good of the one it loves. And you remember in Philippians 2, 12, 13, no, 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 somewhere there, 2, um, when Paul says, do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interest of others. Look out for their interests. To love is to give. Uh, listen, uh, so many times uh, our relationships of love are a mess because we've bought into the Greco-Roman American cultural idea of love. And that is, you fall into it, you can fall out of it. That's a horrible way to live. That's a, that's a verbal description of Hollywood, California. They fall into love, they fall out of love. And everybody just accepts that. Well, well she fell out of love. It's her ninth husband. Um, but there's a Hebrew understanding of love, and it is this. To love is to give. What is God's love for you? He loved you, therefore he gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. If you love one another, you will give and give and give. And if you're both giving, guess what? You're also both receiving. And that's joyful. That, that is joy, sometimes inexpressible. Here are a couple of examples of biblical love. Benjamin B. Warfield, B.B. Warfield, for those of you who are theologians, theologically minded. B.B. Warfield, some of you may not know this about B.B., he was a world-renowned theologian who taught at Princeton Seminary for almost 34 years until his death, February 16, 1921. Many people are aware of his famous books like The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible, classic reading. But what most people don't know is that in 1876, at the age of 25, he married Anne Pierce Kincaid and took a honeymoon to Germany. So he's living in, he's living in New Jersey just wanted to put that in there. <laughs> Princeton is, okay, never mind. They're going to go on a, a trip to Germany, no doubt uh, a Reformation tour or something, which uh, someday. During a fierce storm at sea, Anne was struck by lightning and permanently paralyzed. After caring for her, her nearly 39 years, Warfield later Laid, laid her to rest in 1915. Because of her extraordinary needs, Warfield seldom left his home for more than two hours at a time during all of those years of marriage. To love is to give. Robertson McQuilkin, president of Columbia University, former president, he uh, wrote a letter to his constituency explaining why he was stepping down from the presidency. This is in a book called A Promise Kept. And he says this, eventually I had to approach the board of trustees with the need to begin search for my, new, for my successor. I told them then that when Muriel needed me full time, then she would have me. She had Alzheimer's. When the time came, the decision was firm, and it didn't take any heavy-duty calculations. Soon after the decision was announced, I wrote a letter to the, my constituency, and here's what the letter said. 
22 years ago, 22 years is a long time, but then again, it can be shorter than one anticipates. And how do you say goodbye to friends who do not wish you to leave? The decision to come to Columbia was most difficult I have ever had to make. The decision to leave, 22 years later, though painful, was one of the easiest. Let me explain. My dear wife, Muriel, has been in failing health for 12 years. So far, I have been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at Columbia, but recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time that she is with me and almost none of the time when I am away from her. It is not just discontent, she is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home, so it's clear to me that she needs me now, full time. Perhaps it would help if you understand, help you understand, if I shared with you what I shared in chapel at the time of the announcement of my resignation. The decision was made, in a way, 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health until death do us part. And so, as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with this. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I care for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be a grim and stoic thing, but there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, her occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful person. To love is to give. And young people, learn it now. Learn it now. So that when you get married, if you get married, you will know how to build a marriage that both exemplifies the glory of the church's relationship with Christ, the glory of Christ himself, and the glory of his gospel, and all the joy that goes with it. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's sufficient for every need. And pray, Father, that you would take it now and apply it to our homes and in a way that brings you great glory. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.